Hello, Hamish. How are you today? I'm very well, Luke. And how are you? <laughs> Good, thanks. <laughs> thanks for joining me on the Back of House podcast. Michael is uh, unfortunately tied up, so you're the ring-in. So glad to be here. It sounds like it. The enthusiasm is... Uh, is Infectious? Uh, yeah. What's going on in your world? How is life at Applejack? My life at Applejack's good. We're actually opening a pub tonight. Um, so I've had our friends and family last night. Um, sorry, I didn't get the invite, Luke. Um, it was um, it was good. Wouldn't it was, have come, wouldn't have come well. anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it went as well as they do. They're always a bit awkward and service is okay. But tonight is going to be exceptional. So um, the Tap House opening tonight, pretty pumped. Yeah. What's the um? So what's tonight? Like a, an official like opening party? Is it? No, there's no party. It's just the just public's opening. welcome to come in. The doors are open. Come and say good day. Yeah, right. Food looks very good. Thank you. Um, I, I did it all myself. No, it's um all Pat, <laughs> all, all Pat and Sam. But um, no, they've knocked it out of the park with this one. It's pretty pretty good. Lots of fun. Yeah, nice. Well, mate, we might as well jump in. So today's guest is Megan Sullivan. So there's a little bit of a backstory um, to Megan. I, I personally didn't really know much about her, which doesn't really mean anything. But uh, when I was heading over to New York in March, um, Frank Roberts suggested that I say hello and said that she's incredibly impressive, which, you know, coming from him, um, obviously piqued a bit of interest uh, to learn more about her. And she was really kind in looking after us for a few bookings in her group in New York, which is Union Square Hospitality Group. So um, I'm sure a lot of people know who who they are. World-renowned business started by Danny Meyer, who um, wrote the book Setting the Table, which is you know a, a kind of a bit of a Bible within hospitality uh, sectors around the world. But Megan's gone over and forged her own career. Uh, she's the director of operations across a number of their restaurants, which is pretty amazing. Some iconic restaurants in their group, like um, Gramercy Tavern, yeah, um, Manhattan, which only opened fairly recently, but um, an amazing restaurant over there. So. Yeah, mate, thought we'd get her on, have a chat, find out about her journey from Australia to New York and um, find out uh, obviously just more about her as well. So that's the uh, that's the, the goal for today. That sounds great. I'm excited to learn more. <laughs> it certainly sounds that way. Thanks for the enthusiasm. I'll, uh, we might as well jump in. Let's do it. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Do you want to just give us a bit of insight, I guess, as to your background? Like, how how, where, how did you start in hospitality? Why did you start in hospitality? Um, and how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So, I um, grew up in Australia and in, in Sydney, and uh, my parents um, own restaurants since before I was born. So, I was, you know, immersed within the industry from a from a young age within the family, and I was always determined to do something else um, because I saw firsthand the challenges of of the hospitality industry from my parents. And so I always wanted to be a a fashion designer and and move to Paris. And, you know, here we are um, with a a different different path. And I started working in um, my parents' um, restaurant just, you know, on the weekends um, after high school and then started at uh, Maryvale when I was 18 uh, at Est uh, Restaurant and uh, worked with that company um, 
for just over eight years and um, have been in New York now, joined Union Square Hospitality Group, um, which was just over four years ago. So um been fortunate enough to work uh, with a few different uh, amazing hospitality companies in two different cities and really got, you know, introduced to the industry through the lens of uh, seeing my parents be a part of it. So do you remember what changed your mind in terms of making that shift from going, you know, down the fashion designer path to staying in hospitality? I think that I, uh, you know, obviously my perspective of the industry was, you know, just my mum or dad not being there or being home late or us always, our holidays having to be dictated by the restaurant business. And I, I saw all the, all the challenging kind of negative parts of, of the impact of being in the, in the business in such a big way. So I was like, you know, I'm going to choose a, a better life than that of, of all those things. And, um, and I'd always loved fashion and had loved uh, France and Paris and fortunate enough to travel quite a lot as a family. So I remember when I first started working in my parents' restaurant just to kind of, you know, earn, earn some money and save up to actually move to Paris. I just really was inspired by the people I worked with. I think I found some sense of community in a way that I'd never really felt in my whole life. And that collective kind of spirit of what we were achieving together and the hard times and the crazy services and, you know, all of, all of that camaraderie, that sense of belonging, I, I just couldn't imagine getting in a, in the path that I originally wanted to take and was really infectious. And that kind of adrenaline rush that I've always uh, chased in various different ways, you know, as a, as a child and a teenager, just kind of transferred in into service and restaurants. And um, I don't really think there was a day where I just changed my mind. I just kind of couldn't imagine not working in restaurants and not working in the industry. So, you know, who knows what, maybe one day in a, when I, <laughs> I'm 60, it'll, it'll still happen or, or something like that, a second career. But, um, but yeah, I, I feel like I just, once I was got that bug, I just never really looked back. It's actually quite literally in the blood. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed, indeed. You've had a really um, interesting career and like from an outsider looking in, it seems quite targeted. Your pathway through the styles of restaurants you're working in and the level that you're working in, is that was something that was quite strategic for you or like as a, as a youngster entering into hospitality? I think a lot of people, particularly who sort of, uh, for want of a better term, um, start out in hospitality and then fall in love with it and then remain in hospitality, myself and, and Luke and uh, many others, I'm sure, feel exactly in that same sort of pool. Did you at some point go, okay, I want to make a career out of this and I'm going to go start working at these kinds of places so I can then curate my career to get to a level of where you are today? Was that something that was that was in your mind? Because from an outside looking in, it, was, it appears so. You know, I think to start, it wasn't like, you know, when I first um, started in the industry and, you know, I started at Est as a food runner and kind of worked in all of the different positions. I I just really loved being a part of it. And I think it really clicked after I uh, was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with Franck Moreau and be a sommelier at Est and, and train in that way, fell in love with wine, had always had a connection to wine. And I remember kind of feeling like I had a choice to make um, in my next path of becoming a, um, a head sommelier and, and kind of taking um, the route of management through the lens of beverage and or, you know, going down being a supervisor, assistant manager, et cetera. And I think it was then that I, I remember getting some feedback as a sommelier at S that I 
kept kind of seeing the restaurant too much as a whole and not really focusing on my beverage responsibilities and wine responsibilities and service. I'd greet a table before I'd do my wine pairing and I couldn't really, you know, stop um, seeing the priorities of the the restaurants overall and the team overall. And I think that's when I realized that I can't turn off you know, those, those senses and, and really wanted to take that path. So, so yeah, from there, I always had a dream to be the CEO of a hospitality company. That kind of was my, my dream from, from around that, that time when I thought about what it would take and how I'd want to educate myself and have the experience level to, to make that a reality. And then kind of from there made some, some decisions with, with that dream in mind. And pretty soon after Est, I think I, I, re- I remember thinking that I really need to diversify my experience in the food and beverage industry. I'd known fine dining and, and that level at, at, in a really intimate way, but, you know, bars and, you know, more casual style venues driven by volume, I really needed to, to kind of uh, go into. So, um, made some, some specific choices about how I could get myself uncomfortable to, to, uh, build that out. So. You are like the poster child for professionalism in a hospitality uh, <laughs> <laughs> employee. I, I don't know if I've lived that every day, but um, but it's. It. Did you have any? Um, was it was you know obviously going from school into your career, and I don't want to harp on and get stuck on this, but something we talk a lot about, um, and Luke and I talk a lot about, is is the pathway between going from school into a professional hospitality career. Was there some support either from the school, obviously your parents being restaurateurs, I'm sure they were, you know, encouraging of it or maybe not, but was there some support of the school? And did you feel you got any, uh, was it more just, was it more of an organic approach? You know, um, was there any pushbacks from the school? And, you know, was, what, 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 was it, what was your sort of career options when leaving? I was always nervous to say out loud that, um, you know, I wanted hospitality to be my career for the many reasons that we all know can be challenging for people to kind of, uh, who aren't in the industry or haven't witnessed how amazing it can be for it to be taken seriously. And so I think I felt, you know, I, I always worked really hard at school to get good grades and all those kinds of things. And I remember one, um, of my friends in high school being like, you're going to just like throw that all away just to go and work in restaurants. And I, that like stuck with me so much. And I like, I, sometimes I think about like, you know, calling that person up and being like, you know, it's, it, it, you know, you, Where are you, now? <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, you know, like it's crazy to think because we use so many, you know, different diverse um, amount of skills that you learn in school in, in this industry. Anyway. So I think I, I definitely didn't feel support um, at that time. I think I, Obviously, saw firsthand my parents, you know, build a very successful career in the in the industry. So I didn't need any convincing that it was, you know, a path that was possible to to take. I wouldn't say that I felt support in it. I think I just felt their encouragement of if this is what you love, then we'll support you and 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 obviously help you um, make those decisions however you like. I think my my dad actually um, pretty much didn't fire me, but basically told me I had to get another job because I was getting too comfortable and I knew everything and everyone. And he was like, okay, it's time. It's time for you to, to find something else. And he encouraged me to kind of get started with Maryvale. But yeah, I wouldn't say that I received a lot of support from a school sense and definitely felt my own pressure of like, you know, societally, uh, how it would be seen taking into it. And I remember many times at Est, you know, as a, as a young person working in the industry, 
uh, in a fine dining sense as well, like people saying, so what do you do? Um, and I was like, well, this is what I did. Like, oh, no, no. So what do you study? And I was like, oh, no, this, this is, this is it. Yeah. I started to kind of get like a, a bit of joy out of like showing that like it, this is possible and, and you can do it. And every one person you say, no, this is what I do. Then maybe they'll, they'll support their, you know, child or grandchild in, in like, pursuing that passion and seeing it as a career as well. Mm. The um, education topic, I mean, I'm interested to hear how you educated yourself, as you said before, because Hamish is probably mentally referencing a a meeting we had last week at one of his restaurants and the topic, uh, we had had a lot of um, either hospitality business owners from large groups or or the CEOs of those groups um, at a round table just to discuss kind of that topic like the education piece came up a lot in terms of how we can you know I, I won't go into too much detail but potentially build a platform whereby the, the the formality of education in hospitality or accreditation is actually uh more prominent because it is still yeah. like you say everything you say is it resonates like people still look at it as a, a an industry that you may do for a period and then move on to something else but that level of accreditation that you get in other sectors um, probably has a place in hospitality as well but the education side of it is really important as well so uh, how did you educate yourself like what did you do to actually either study or was it just like casual learning like you're reading about certain topics or doing a w set course for example or you know what what, what was it I mean, it's interesting, I guess, before I answer that question directly, uh, coming over to New York and being in the industry here, it's very interesting that just the nature of having a lot more, uh, you know, culinary programs rooted in education that people do see it far more as a career and it is much more immersed into high school and, you know, opportunities as a path in career when those, you know, for example, the CAA work closely with various different high schools and so forth to be an option just like any other kind of college over here. So it's very interesting to see kind of in New York how and in America how that exists in a more structured way, the impact of how people see it as a, as a path and get introduced to it from an early stage. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, it's such an interesting and, you know, topic that we could probably spend the, the whole hour, um, talking <laughs> about like, like obviously there's a reason why you had that round table. I think that for me personally, I think the first thing that came to mind was just the people that I, that I was surrounded by. I was so fortunate to work with incredibly talented leaders, uh, chefs, professionals that have gone on to do exceptional things, specifically at S. I think that was my formative years. You know, so many chefs own their own restaurants now. Um, our head chefs have worked all over the world. You know, my first uh, restaurant manager has gone on to do amazing things and, Really, I think the people that I was surrounded myself with were the biggest education that, that I got from that, from that, um, from that young age and still some principles that I still tell and pass on, um, even to this day, many years later. And then from there, I think the curiosity and like my appetite to like keep challenging myself, because obviously, you know, in service, you show up every time, every day to do a similar version of, you know, a similar thing with obviously uh, a whole different new set of opportunities, guests and and challenges that you have. But I needed uh, that like intellectual kind of challenge to keep me feeling like I was growing at that rate. And I think that's why I also started you know, pursuing becoming a SOM for that period of time, because that provided that, that path. And, you know, 
I feel like you can never know everything about wine, which is such a the exciting and and amazing part about um, being a student to it that that never ending sense of you know you could never know it all. So I think that was like my first way I I went to do uh, Wesset level one two and three and started the court of uh, master sommelier path as well before um, you know moving back into management. So took that path and then I think from getting into management, then started around more leadership style readings, self-teachings, you know, learnings, conversations, engaging with different uh, platforms like Gallup Strengths and various different, you know, inspirations through different people of different industries as well and bring those leadership lessons to how we apply it uh, in hospitality. And then from, from there, I think you know, at um, Maryvale, where I worked for for just over eight years, uh, many um, of the team there, and I was involved in the beginning parts of creating kind of a more structured program for development in leaders, and started a like leadership course that then we partnered with Alara Learning to um, become an accreditation, and uh, went through doing that, and kind of starting to create that so that people could really feel like there was some structure to to that growth um, going into a management role. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a whole lot you learn from being out of your comfort zone, and I definitely uh, learned via that way in, in many different ways. And then coming over to New York, starting a brand-new company has been you know, an incredible way to, to start that off in a whole different sense. But, uh, yeah, I think just reaching out, finding the right people and right – I mean, there's an endless amount of, of things out there. It just doesn't come, I guess, in that structured way in my, in my journey anyway. I got to ask before we jump onto your current um, role, what were the restaurants your parents owned? Because I also like note your brother is also in hospitality at a very high level in New York, right? Like he, I, I, I was lucky enough to go to um, 11 Madison Park while I was in New York. I, I just read the um, Unreasonable Hospitality book and, and had to just go and experience it. And your brother served me, and I didn't know it was your brother, obviously, but he was um, obviously an exceptionally talented hospitality professional. So it definitely is in the blood. Where did where did it start? So what what, what are the restaurants that your parents owned? Um, so my parents um, were in partnership, uh, uh, having, and they were partners of Aria and the Morsel Group. So Aria Opera Bar, um, Chiswick. North Bondi um, Fish at the time and uh, partners with Matt Moran and Bruce Solomon in Morsel. So they, uh, yeah, they've since sold out of, out of that business and they're now travelers of the world and enjoying all of the hard earned hours they put into, you know, uh, endlessly serving others and um, are traveling the world now. So uh, they're actually here in New York right now, um, which is really nice to, to be on the flip side. My dad was like called me the other day at like 6 p.m. He was like, do you want to go for a drink? I was like, it's 6 p.m. on a Wednesday. Have you forgotten like what uh, hospitality that 6 p.m. on a Wednesday <laughs> you must have forgotten. not the time that I finish work? <laughs> well, it's no wonder you uh, ended up where you are with, I mean, they're pretty average restaurants, right? Like Aria and <laughs> yeah, they're pretty, pretty low standards. So, um, yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you got to love it. Oh, you got, oh, you got to love it. Do you want to give us a bit of insight as to where you are now, the company you're in? Because I think um, obviously like world-renowned business, Danny Meyer, obviously a world-renowned, world-renowned hospitality um, leader. What's your role? What are you doing? What's the company 
So I work for Union Square Hospitality Group, as you mentioned, owned by Danny Meyer. We've in like, I think it's 37 years now um, since he started the company. So, you know, been around for a little while and he's still, you know, now the the founder and, and still uh, very much involved, obviously not on the grounds kind of uh, root level, but really still in the day to day and will be able to, to like, it's amazed me on a, you know, such a regular basis, how much he continues to know here and like connect dots, you know, he'll send me a text about a guest coming into one of my restaurants the next day and remember what cocktail they like and ask if we can have it prepared and send it from him. And, you know, I think coming into USHG, I had obviously expectations from reading, setting the table and and knowing the reputation from afar, but, you know, actually living those principles and seeing it actually come to life and not just be something that um, is written about has been, uh, you know, really amazing to be a part of. So my role is a director of operations and I oversee multiple different uh, restaurants across our full service restaurants in the group. Right now I am overseeing uh, Chisiamo, which is uh, our newest restaurant, Gramsci Tavern, which is um, coming up on almost 30 years and uh, the modern and cafes in the MoMA Museum, uh, which is where I first started when when I arrived. So um, very fortunate to work across three very diverse businesses. And then there's multiple initiatives and um, partnerships that I have, you know, that I work with the teams on on a group level as well. But those businesses are the ones that I'm directly accountable for at the moment. That's really interesting. What's your, what's your day-to-day like in a role like that? So are you, um, you know, you solely service focused are you like all about the financials what are you what are you what are you doing to try to drive those businesses we actually just did like a, a kind of class on this the other day uh because people we had like a summer internship program every year and one of the top kind of things they wanted to hear about was the role of um of director operations so uh my counterpart uh joe tarasco who does the same role as me and i put together that and we sat down at a table and we were like, so how do we uh, (laughs) describe this in like 45 minutes or less? I think the like easiest way that I feel like I can describe it is I feel like I'm a restaurant owner within a company because we are a big company with a lot of different parts and facets of our business, not just restaurants, whether it be marketing, HR, finance, facilities, people management, recruitment, venue, stylistic decisions, food and beverage offering, pricing, whatever it is. I guess just being the level setter of all of those things and connecting our our what we call home office um, departments with the operators directly to ensure that we are living up to our cultural and guest expectations of, of what that business is and continuing to stay in line with our brand of that specific business, in line with our, you know, principles of Unisco Hospitality Group and continuing to grow and evolve. Obviously, I'm, you know, directly accountable to all the financial results of each of those businesses that I oversee and uh, everything that comes with that. But I think, you know, I always have a philosophy of people drive performance. And so the performance of the business, I believe, is a reflection of how the people in it from every level are, are operating. And if they're the right people and they're enjoying their their time there and and kind of what that that dynamic is. So, yeah, I interact with almost all facets of the of the business. And I guess from a day to day level, I split my time between each of each of those businesses. I'm just transitioning out of 
giving uh, the Modern and, and the MoMA cafes back to the food and beverage director there that was on leave and then taking on another business. So a little bit of transition happening that I try and spend my time between all three and then spend, you know, half a day or so working in, in the home office on some more strategic projects and new projects that are coming down the pipeline um, from there. So, you know, from today, I was in a various different meetings from all, all levels and interviewing different leaders, uh, did a tasting, was part of, a, you know, a facilities um crisis and and all the things. So uh, try and focus enough of my time on, you know, proactive work and not reactive work. I try and stay out of just being a firefighter, but, you know, some days I succeed better than others. And then, and then service-wise, I mean, I call that my self-care these days um, when I just like close the laptop and get out on the floor and interact with the team and guests. I had some regular guests of mine that were uh, here from Australia and Chisiamo last night. So I was there till 11 p.m. or so just in service with the team. So it really, really changes on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Well, that's a really good way of putting it. And I think the um, owner within the business is really, really good. Um, I know that operations people, it's it's such a, a challenging role and, and to remain focused and understanding what you're trying to what you're trying to achieve is really, really challenging. But that was articulated really well. With the um ethos of the business i mean i I would assume a number of people who listen to this would have read setting the table because it's such an iconic book but how does that sort of literally come to life in the in the business what are the values that you set around culture because they're again they may be well known to some people but how do you sort of bring them to life i think the biggest one for me and the easiest way to to kind of describe that is just it's a people first culture. It sounds so easy to just say we put our employees first, but when it becomes tough, when you have to make a decision that either is going to therefore impact the guest or financials in a big way, biggest thing that I've A, been proud of and B, learned so much is the, like the relentless pursuit of putting our employees first, even if that means perhaps not like seemingly not being on the guest side or having a big financial impact. And sometimes I think that that was a little difficult for me to uh, adjust to and understand, you know, in COVID, no business did anything perfectly. We didn't have a, a rule map, um, a roadmap, sorry, for for that. But um, and being someone that was laid off during that time by USHEA, the way in which I felt, even though I was laid off during that time, the way in which the company uh, made me feel and continued to engage with me even after I'd been let go and the decisions they made that had huge financial impacts on the business that, you know, even to this day, we're still repaying in a big way for the long-term vision of, of putting people first is something that I'm inspired by, by daily in the business. And then, you know, really that philosophy comes down to if we put each other first, we'll put out, you know, and create that culture, then we'll be able to put our guests first, that then we can look, take care of our suppliers, our community, our investors, and then, you know, the cycle continues. So, so yeah, I think that's the, that's the biggest kind of principle and, and takeaway that I see on a, a day-to-day of how we make decisions, whether it be in service, in HR situations, in hiring somebody, in, you know, partnerships, you know, we just closed two of our businesses at USHE that uh, are part of a hotel that have uh, recently become a hotel in which 
refugees were being housed because of the the amount of uh, refugees and um, crisis here in in New York. There's around sixty thousand or so that the government, you know, was getting hotels to become housing for, and so the dynamic of that whole hotel changed, obviously, and you know, we felt like it was the right decision to to close those businesses um, because you know it, it was just the right thing, and obviously that has a big impact in many different ways, but um, just a recent example of of taking on the other challenges that come with um, putting, you know, em- employees and, and community and, and uh, first above all else. Can you point to some, like, really specific examples as to how you achieve that? I mean, the easiest one that comes to mind is is, is guests. I, I think, you know, we've all interacted with, with various guests that perhaps didn't uh, treat, you know, our employees or our team in a way that we'd like. And I remember talking directly with Danny about a guest in one of my venues and he, you know, stood by the the decision of of asking him to not return to our to our businesses based on the way in which um, the guest treated our, our employees. And I think that's a, a, a direct and clear example of, and this guest happened to be spending a lot of money and it had spent a lot of money in our businesses. And that frank conversation of, we're not going to welcome you back unless there is a, you know, a, another conversation down the line. But for the meantime, um, we'd like for you to, you know, take a break from joining us because we won't allow our, our employees to be treated um, in the way that, that you did. And, Standing behind that and standing behind the consequences of that, I think is, yeah, is one of those examples. Is it a tough topic when there could be a conflict of interest between what's best for the guests and what's best for the staff member? Because I imagine there would be instances where, and, and that's an example of of one, um, because that could be quite, I, I guess the whole concept, I, I fully subscribe to it, but I think for some businesses or individuals that may be challenging to always, no matter what, put the staff member first. Um, and, and and there will be definitely instances where there's a, a friction there that you kind of need to iron out. How, is, is there a process to how you do that? Or is it just a case by case, like, look at all the facts on the table and, and figure out what you do? I don't think there's a process. I think like, you know, one of our core values is, is having charitable assumption and always um, assuming the best in people. And I think that's one of the tools I guess we use of looking at the lens of like having that charitability. Of course, in circumstances, how and, you know, you could apply that charitability to everyone. You still need to make a decision moving forward. But I think, um, definitely this conflict, you know, there's many times where I feel like I've made the wrong decision with trying to put the employee in, uh, first. And perhaps that wasn't the right choice based on, you know, not getting all the, all the information or, you know, the story being different than how it was shared with me or, you know, us not holding the team accountable and, you know, that impacting in certain different ways. So, you know, I don't think it's a, it's something that you get right every time because there's no playbook of, you know, when to take a left or right there. But I think that really just the trust in that philosophy paying off long-term is the thing that keeps bringing me back to Am I making this decision just for the right now or for the short term? Or if I do put in team, our, our team first and we take care of each other first. And I think uh, I try and not see it as one or the other. Of course, there's examples where it's one or the other. But I, I think the, the philosophy at its best is if we take care of each other first and foremost, then we have the right people, the right environment, the right culture, and the right energy to take care of our guests even better. And there's that desire 
to want to because you feel taken care of. So you have a stronger desire and a stronger ambition to be able to take care of uh, the guests and, and feel like if the business wins, then you win too. I think that's the principle at its, at its best. And of course, that can come into play when there's challenging, um, you know, decisions to make. But I think at its best, that that's the philosophy um, as a whole. How was the COVID experience for you in New York? Just, yeah, talk us through it. Because obviously it was, it was quite different to ours here and I guess blew up as a bit of it. It feels like so long ago um, now. And it's really weird, yeah. But, um, yeah. I can't believe we're still talking about it, but it, it, it's interesting. I mean, being in hospitality in New York when it was, when it was um, really sort of blowing up, what was it like? Um, yeah, I mean, we went through so many different phases. I feel like it was, uh, it was a roller coaster for on many different levels. I mean, I arrived in New York six months before COVID. So I had a pretty brief time of uh, pre-COVID New York life. And then obviously in March of 2020, I remember so clearly that, uh, the modern was where I was at, um, at the time. And we closed really early. I think it was like the 8th or 7th or 8th of March. And, um, it was like, maybe four days before the city mandated um, restaurants to close, which felt like a lifetime and like crazy at the time. Maybe it was three days. I can't remember. But um, yeah, so, you know, from there, obviously things escalated pretty quickly and pretty rapidly. And I remember calling my brother, like saying, should I, like, should we stock up on things basically? Like that's, that's, you know, obviously everyone went through their own version of, of that kind of fear and, and unknown but then, you know, the, the news and the real like life examples of seeing like some, some really difficult things like, you know, uh, ambulances and, and, you know, refrigeration trucks outside hospitals and so on and so forth. Like there was a, it was a ghost town. Like it was, you, no one was outside. So it was, it was pretty, um, yeah, it was pretty scary at times. But I think New York is, I think the most resilient like city of the world of, I mean, many cities are but this this place has a has a way of bouncing back like nothing I've ever seen and um and obviously it took some time and we kept there was many different you know bounce backs along the way but during that time I had the opportunity to work at um the inner pound ridge um by John George up in Westchester uh because at the time uh that was the only area because it wasn't in the New York City like metropolitan district that was allowed to be open for restaurants. And because I'm Australian, I have a visa to work in the US, obviously. So no job, no visa. So I had like four or five different visas over the course of a few years just to kind of stay through the throughout that time. And and yeah, so I had an opportunity to work in a different part of New York with a different company during the pandemic, basically. I was there from September of 2020 until um, about midway through 2021. So yeah, open and close that restaurant, you know, maybe, I don't know, 20 times or so after various bouts of, of you know, employees getting COVID and that was the the law at the time. So, yeah, it was a, a really, really challenging time and a really scary time like it was in in a lot of the world. But um, I think I, I, because I'd only been here for six months, I was like, I can't go home now. Like I, I've, I didn't, you know, I haven't actually been here long enough to really experience it. So I had this kind of, blind determination to stay no matter what and um you know I'm very glad I I did but there was a point there where I had like 12 days left on my visa 
like the the amount of time they give you after your visa ends before you need to leave the country and I had like 12 days before I got this this role so yeah I reckon a lot of people um, listening in Australia would be really curious to know um, what are the main differences that you've noticed between working in Sydney and working in uh, the States in New York specifically? There's just, there's so many. Um, I'll try and keep it to the the top ones. I think the first one is just the volume, like the amount of restaurants in New York, the amount that open every single day, week, the amount that exist, the amount of people, just the volume is just, uh, you know, the first and foremost one that is uh, the biggest difference. I think it's it's a it's a strange thing to think that like you never will know every restaurant in New York City. It's just like almost impossible. Whereas in Sydney I, and in Australia, I think in in various different industries and and cities that you do know the large majority of of many of them. So I think that creates an environment where you can be a great restaurant in New York and and still fail. Um, you can have a, an exceptional location, great food, great service, but there's like a hundred other out there that have that bar just as high and and it takes you know tenacity and grit and a lot of other things to be able to be one that lasts the test of time so just that volume is is creates a very different environment on many many different levels i think one of the other biggest challenges is the difference in how people are how people are paid and the minimum wage and the way in which tips um supplement a huge majority of you know especially front of house earnings and so that dynamic culturally of how essentially a large majority of front of house team members earnings are driven by tips from guests creates a, a, a very different dynamic to, to in Australia where obviously the pay and the way in which tips are culturally is, is different. Uh, and then I think, you know, the thing that we touched on earlier around how people see this as a career, there's a, uh, a lot more young people that are coming straight out of culinary school or have come from another industry or they're actors or pursuing another passion in life and here in New York for another passion, but have been working in restaurants for 20 years because it's the best way to supplement their other passion. So you're working with a, a lot more people that this is either their, you know, something they've been doing a long time and they have another passion or this is their career. Uh, and that, that uh, you know, elevated sense of how many people are going into this as this is their career um, just creates a different dynamic as well to be able to work from. What about operationally, like the nuts and the bolts, so the way that it works? Does it feel very different? I mean, is it a very transferable skill to go from being, you know, a manager in a restaurant in Sydney to go and want to forge your way through New York? Is it is it the same or does it feel very different the way they do things? It feels very similar. You know, that all the nuances that, all, that I kind of spoke about are all like cultural and more soft kind of differences. But, mm. you know, if you are running a great restaurant in, in Australia, then you could come and, and slip right into to the nuts and bolts of running a great restaurant in New York, I think. Actually, something that I found the most refreshing is that uh, I think 
in New York, like Australian culture and energy of hospitality is really well received. People, I feel like guests and, and team members really appreciate the kind of natural culture that exists in ho- Australian hospitality. So, so I think that that's almost even more of a perk to be able to, to kind of come and bring that refreshing sense of just openness and kindness and, you know, yeah, that, that, that culture of, uh, of Australian hospitality. So, I mean, definitely feels from a nuts and bolts standpoint, uh, very similar. Aussies seem to be doing really well in the States and in, in, in New York. Like when I was, I was there in March, just through uh, luck or, you know, happenstance, found myself in so many different Australian-owned uh, hospitality businesses, restaurants, cafes, bars. It it just seems to be, uh, like you said, well well received. But there's a, there's a number of um, even some of your former colleagues from Maryvale operating venues over there. So plenty of opportunity. I mean, you can look at it ac- across the world. There's Australians in hospitality tend to be able to go anywhere and and succeed. Southeast Asia, obviously, pretty pretty um, well populated by Aussies in hospitality. But it's really good to see. Like you can, you can feel it when you go into the into the business it just feels like an australian hospitality business <laughs> for obvious reasons but it, it feels different to the uh you know probably the american hospitality businesses yeah. which is nice no i mean i think i think perception wise like australian culture and friendliness and openness and like that kind of slightly more relaxed attitude that i think that we can have i think directly translates to hospitality in a really really um, wonderful way and you know we're a long way from the rest of the world in the in kind of Europe and 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 America, but I think that like the food and beverage and hospitality scene in, in Australia is some of the best in the in the world. So you know it makes complete sense that translates in some of the best markets because I think that quality is is absolutely there in 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 many ways. Well, can I ask your opinion on the tips thing? I didn't realize that tips were so well that they're legislated. You have to allow people to work a specific amount of time in tip earning duties, and if you don't, you can be sued, right? Like I don't, I don't know if everyone knows that. I certainly didn't realize the level to which tips were in kind of enforced by law. Um, and to the point, I think this is correct. I was told this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like managers can't even physically touch the tip money because it's just not, you know, it's not within their purview. Does it lead to better outcomes in terms of attracting people to the sector and, and keeping them there because they're probably better remunerated? Like I was sitting at a bar in New York and I I was very interested in the tips and just counted the amount of money that uh, the bartender would have been earning in a, you know, in like a 10-minute period. Like it, it, there is a good amount of money coming in through tips for individuals. I heard a negative side of it in that, it was tough getting people into management positions because they would lose out on tips. So people wanted to say in a casual role or a tip earning role. Yep. If you compare the Sydney or the Australian, sorry, culture around tipping and remuneration to the States is, would you, would you say one is better than the other or leads to better outcomes than the other? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's just, there's pros and cons to both. I've seen, you know, post COVID, because you can really earn a, a really decent wage in in the hospitality industry because of the amount you can earn in tips um, and what's possible in that sense, then I think people had, you know, more desire to come back because you can get straight into that, right? And it can provide 
a great opportunity for people that are highly skilled, but time-wise can only work a specific amount of time, just like in Australia. The two biggest things that I find the most challenging with the um, ways in which you can distribute tips in New York is it really stunts growth because of the capacity you can earn in a casual or a tipped employee role and then transitioning into a management role. So it really feels like it should be a promotion, but in some ways it can be a demotion in terms of earnings, which makes it obviously very challenging to promote um, to promote growth. So that's one of the biggest challenges. The second is that the back of house employees are legislatively not allowed to receive any tips, which, you know, everyone has a slightly different perspective on, but um, I find really difficult to not be able to share that guest uh, gratitude with the back of house employees that work work hard to, to provide that experience as well. So, uh, you know, that can mean various different things. Obviously, the minimum wage um, in New York is $15 an hour. Almost, you know, many, many um, businesses pay well above that, but still, you know, being able to, to be, you know, at that that lower end without um, any shares of the of the tips means that the choice between front and back of house can be a real disparity between earnings in a lot of senses. And then the last one is that because tips can vary based on business levels, you can create this, there can be this culture of like working a Monday lunch versus a Saturday night could be five, six times the amount that you'd earn because of the business level of that shift. And if you, you know, are a parent or, you know, are studying and and have different like needs from a scheduling standpoint, you could, you know, be the because the base wage is is different to how it is in Australia. The disparity in your earnings is um, is much greater. Um, but then, from you know the Australian standpoint, I think having empl- uh, tipped employees really motivated to giving great hospitality obviously uh, can can be connected to to how much you get tip wise, but that can create a good like sense of desire and drive to do well for for the guests to be able to make sure they have a good time. And then if they feel that way, then then be compensated in that sense. So that drive of delivering excellence can sometimes obviously be helped with that financial incentive um, that's there for, for tips. Women in hospitality, we talk about this regularly. As a woman in hospitality, what's your experience been like um, working in New York versus what you would have received in Australia? I've I've been very fortunate to work um, in environments where I have felt really supported being a a woman in hospitality. I think I'm very passionate about uh, continuing to create environments where that remains the case, both personally and on a more like holistic sense from the industry at large. In terms of differences, honestly, I don't, I don't really think I'd say there's a huge amount of differences. I think, you know, each woman has taken a different journey and going through their, their journey and their career period. And, and obviously in hospitality in this case. And mine has kind of been a case of feeling a sense of having to prove, um, that I hold the role I have at both the age and, and my, my gender when people's, you know, assumptions might be different and, and the challenges that come with that. I was just in the elevator the other day at, at one of um, my businesses, Chisiamo, and uh, one of the uh, gentlemen who worked for the building 
that's in um, was like, oh, are you new here? And I was like, no, I've, you know, been here since we opened. And he asked my name. And then he said, his next question was, are you, are you a host? And I was like, no, no, not a host. Um, but, you know, that, that assumption still exists, you know, and I, I feel, um, responsible for continuing to advocate for um opportunities for for women and and especially as as uh, they go into motherhood for those who choose to to create environments and and flexible work environments that historically in operations roles are you know very difficult to to the hours that you know it takes to be a parent and and yeah so you know although I'm not a parent myself I I feel like that's one of the biggest challenges in in how we continue to have women in in hospitality and specifically in in operations led roles um, still exist because um, in you know in the same equality because of of that challenge. So yeah, I, I don't think there's that many differences. I think it's just you know both both we can continue to both in Australia and in New York and continue to be better in driving towards diversity in in both gender and and culture and background something that i um i noticed on the union square um website was they put the quotas for gender and um uh on the website is that something that putting it front row and center right like that um has a direct impact on the business or do you think it's is it something that's talked about internally or is it just something that is is part of the culture now and 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 grows a result of that we um, talk about it internally often. You know, we have a diversity, inclusion, and belonging sector of our business, and and it's taught to all of our employees as we you know bring them on to our to our company. And I think that quota is is and has a few different purposes. One, we we want to hold ourselves accountable to the goals we set of of creating equality in in gender, background, um, ethnicity uh, amongst our amongst our teams, especially at leadership levels, and you know, as as a as a business overall. And then I think you know, being able to also you know show to our our employees first and our guests, you know, the type of environment that they'd be you know coming in uh, to either work in or be a guest of, and what you know the the diversity of of the teams that they'll be working with or or being taken care of um are so you know i i certainly can't say that we're we're at a finished end product or anything like that i think quarter is is just one way in which we uh share that and be transparent with with where our opportunities still lie and uh where the growth that we're proud of and a continued way for us to hold ourselves accountable to to staying on that path yeah it's awesome may seem slightly tangential but where 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 is your career going you mentioned that you wanted to be a did you say coo or ceo of a hospitality group are you planning on doing that in the states or are you heading further abroad or are you going to come home because you may get a few email job offers off the back of this podcast i would suggest after people listen to you talking so uh what, what are your plans it's a great question. Um, I used to plan my life like out. That's how I like had this goal of being the CEO of a hospitality company. I used to plan my life in one, 12, 12 months, three years, five years, 10 year goals, et cetera. And I didn't plan on moving to New York in, in my career. I originally was just coming for one year. I remember when I 
when I told my boss, uh, Frank Roberts, that I was going to come, I was coming for a year to kind of expand my horizons and come back. And, you know, we're a few years later and, and I'm still here. And I think I, yeah, I, I really am inspired by the work and the company that I'm a part of here at the moment. I continue to feel challenged and inspired by New York on a daily basis. Some days when I was back home, I, swam in Bronte Beach and I was like, why am I negating myself this gift of like <laughs> swimming in the ocean and like it being 30 degrees in winter? But um but yeah, I New York is continue continues to inspire and challenge me in both the industry and as a city as a whole. And obviously, you know, uh Europe and, and London have always been places that I've been inspired by also. So I wish I I had that answer um for you, Luke, for both myself and other reasons. But right now, um New York, uh, you know, I feel like I've got more to do here and I guess we'll take it from there. So, yeah, nice. Where do you, if you, just a general area, I, I hope you don't mind me asking this, but where do you live in New York? Yeah, I live in Brooklyn. So I've been there for about almost three years now. And, um, you know, it's still busy and still New York, but, um, just feels, uh, you know, a touch, touch tempo slower than, than Manhattan and, slightly more greenery and instead of Bronte Beach we have Fort Green Park so um so that's uh that's my nature outlet for now <laughs> yeah don't go swimming in the river people sunbathe in the summer in the park because you don't have beaches to like lie by so um that's our vision of it and I don't want to eat into the last one of the final questions but where do you go when you're going out like what kind of places are you visiting do you tend to sort of spread it around in terms of you know more fine dining to casual stuff or what's your kind of social uh social life like over there i try and find a balance of um dining out at the new kind of places that are opening obviously there's so many exciting projects that continue to, to open up in new york and and staying in touch with them and and visiting them um, is something that I continue to enjoy. But really, after a long week of work, um, I tend to kind of find some places where I know the people, I know the food is good, I know the hospitality is good, the playlist is good, and I can just kind of try my best to switch off-ish, face a wall instead of the dining room and, you know, have a glass of champagne and, and relax. So I have like maybe five or six places that I try and go to like once a month or so that kind of feel like going home and and that I know the people at and then yeah mix that in with with checking out some of the new places but yeah I mean in this role I've been been fortunate enough to, to although you know finding balance is always uh difficult in this industry having more flexibility to be able to you know be in service and be with the team um certain nights and then be able to kind of be flexible when things are on uh throughout the rest of the time so yeah, nice. And this may be tough to answer because obviously you've mentioned that there are so many restaurants constantly opening and closing in New York. So I imagine it's fairly disparate in terms of maybe being able to identify trends, but there's definite trends that we're seeing in Australia at the moment, probably in sort of Sydney and Hamish, you may have insight on this as well, but like the French brasserie is, is definitely making a big comeback. There's a, you know, there's quite a few opening. Um, and restaurants in pubs, maybe not necessarily a new thing, but like the toddies kind of thing is kind of really sort of um, taken hold where you've got a you know a more premium food offering in a in a pub. Um, probably you know again that's anecdotal, just a trend that I've noticed. 
what's happening? Is, are there any discernible trends in New York in terms of either venue style, where people are gravitating towards, like the fine diners probably aren't hitting the mark like they used to here. People are after a bit more of a premium casual experience. What can you pull out of the market over there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely some of the trends you mentioned have some some strong similarities here in New York. I think, you know, the Italian movement, you know, New York and Italian restaurants have, have often been um, hand in hand and there's a lot of new Italian restaurants doing really quality Italian, but uh, in a fun kind of more casual environment. So that's definitely um, been one that I've seen. I think the, the French brasserie um, movement is is over here as well and in various different forms from a fine dining sense all the way to, you know, more, you know, perhaps non-traditional, um, definitely. And then I think also a rise of smaller venues, more intimate venues where like you really only have a few um, seats, obviously real estate in New York, just like in, in big cities in Australia, like Sydney, um, continues to be expensive and, and, and challenging. So, you know, people that are, um, young and opened, like opening new venues, um, themselves or their first venue, kind of small, uh, places with really talented people with a few, with few seats, the outdoor post COVID, how New York has changed, how we dine outdoors has really, uh, taken those small real estate, um, spaces to be able to be much more, um, you know, financially makes sense to be able to have double the amount of seats you have by having diners out outside and as well. So, so that's been a, a big change um, and trend that we've seen positively impact um, many areas of 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 the business. So, so yeah, those those three I think um, uh, are probably ones that, that come to mind right away. But you know, New York just there's nothing that surprises me about um, New York anymore that's from hospitality all the way down. Um, I'm sure you could find something of everything that you could think of here. Yeah. Is that saying the outdoor seating? Yeah, we just, the, it just passed. The governor just signed. There's a few like uh, different restrictions where it need, the structure needs to be moved. The ones that are on the street uh, seasonally, you know, throughout the winter um, and there can no longer be, uh, you know, roof, um, roofs that are uh, permanent as well. But that's all coming into effect next year. But essentially, it's um, it's here to stay. There's a, a program of you know enrolling and and signing up for it and so on and so forth. That's more structured. But uh, yeah, I mean it, it's there's some definitely some some challenges to it as well that that I recognise. But you know they've put some more structure in place and it looks like it'll be here to stay. Which you know for hospitality is uh, generally a really good thing. Awesome. Uh, we've got some questions that we ask every guest. It's the final five. The first question is, what's your favourite book or a podcast you've been listening to recently? I've actually been listening to um, Brené Brown on uh, her latest podcast and, you know, her concepts around vulnerability, which is something I've struggled with in my leadership along along my journey. So I find her really inspiring to to listen to and and kind of take those learnings into into my leadership style. So that's that's been one I've been listening to lately. 
And how about music? What vibes are you into? You got a particular album or artist you're into? It really depends on my mood, but it can go anywhere from like Bonnie Ver when I need to like relax and, and chill on a, on a weekend to, you know, Rufus to Soul when I need to like get some energy out and like go on a run and, and be in a different place. So yeah, I like to just press shuffle and, and see where my mood takes me. But um, those two, depending on what what type of week or day it's been. And what are you drinking? What's your favorite drink? That's an easy one. Champagne. All day, every day? All day, every day. <laughs> Champagne. That's so baller. What's, um, <laughs> what's your go-to? Uh, Jerome Prevost is probably my favorite um, champagne producer, perhaps ever. Cedric Bouchard, Buresh, uh, Marguerite. Oh, there's too many. It's making me thirsty thinking about it. But, um, yeah, grower, <laughs> just, grower producers. Just for cheap stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I definitely can't drink that often, but like those are the things that like I save up for and uh and make my heart sing. But I mean, there's one perk about New York is generally imported wines are um you know more affordable than than they can be in 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 Australia. So get a lot of of amazing producers that some you don't that don't make it to Australia, which is um an, a, a cool thing. One of the big perks. What's your favorite venue in New York? Where do you hit the most? In New York. Let's go with that. Narrow it down. That's such a tricky one. I think where do I go the most? It continues to change, but I think the consistent one that I've been to the most since I arrived is probably Pasquale Jones. Um, it's just a really great Italian pizza um, place in Soho that I dined at before I before I arrived in New York. That on Sundays they have fifty percent off grower champagne and play you know great songs and have an, a great atmosphere great hospitality pizza and a glass of champagne and all my worries are gone this sounds like heaven <laughs> <laughs> and the final question is um from an industry perspective um who's your biggest inspiration is there anyone in particular that stands out who's inspired you most over the years or continues to inspire you today yeah i mean so many people i think the person most formative in uh, my leadership and who's inspired me and continues to is um, Frank Roberts, who um, was my mentor and is my mentor in, in Sydney and works for Maryvale. He taught me some tough lessons, um, you know, uh, when I was young in the industry and also some really powerful ones that I continue to to share with the leaders that I that I work with. Yeah, he's uh, I had lunch with him the other day when I when I was in Sydney and um, and he's curiosity his relentlessness for excellence his care for people what we do and the ways in which he took a lot of time out of his his week to yeah to share his his skills and and leadership is is something that continues to inspire me and um we keep in touch from over here so it's always interesting to kind of compare different things from the industry leadership company um initiatives etc um of how things are going and um fortunate enough to yeah to have had him in in my journey awesome nice i know the feeling is mutual on his side so um awesome thank you so much for taking the time it was a pleasure hearing about your career and your story um i'm sure you'll get a few people reaching out to you when they head over to new york please do yeah i'd love Check out some of your restaurants, which I mean, are probably on most people's hit list anyway, because they're so iconic. But um, yeah, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thank you both so much for making the time. It was really good to have uh, some Australian accents um, in <laughs> my day. And, uh, 
and feel that sense of home. And, um, and yeah, please, uh, I look forward to seeing you both and, and anyone that's listening in New York and otherwise um, take care. Thank, Thank you. you.